Symposium at Cambridge Judge Business School, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities in Cambridge Crash, spelt out a vision for the digital revolution and its futures. Once upon a time, government and citizens spoke to one another through vertical structures and edicts got passed down from the top to the bottom. Not anymore. Now, with the advent of new technology, we've got used to talking and receiving services through digital government horizontally and giving feedback. And well, for those who've been round the block a few times, things never will be quite the same again. Lord Wilson, Master of Emmanuel College, Cambridge, used to head the Home Civil Service. Well, we began with a position, I think, in 1992, and there were 38 websites, uh, and a government always uh, is, is sort of reacts to big change in phases. It, 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 this is as it happened with Europe. Um, first of all, it thinks it's nothing to do with it, and then it begins to realise it needs to have a little unit to deal with it. Uh, or in the case of departments, we had units to set up websites for our departments, because that seemed the fashionable thing to do. And then we begin to perceive it has more profound implications for uh, the way we do our business and there was a great from the beginning of I think the Blair government onwards we began to realise the implications for delivery the ability not only to do things better but to do them differently uh, and then slowly I think over the last few years it's become very clear that the implications are profound uh, in, in many different ways. That slow breaking wave over government is leading to a public service where information is the property of people not their servants and rights and freedoms are the issue. Lord Wilson again. Uh, I think it's, it, it raises issues first of uh, uh, all sorts of levels. It raises issues about the structure of government. We used traditionally to uh, base government departments around particular subject areas like agriculture or trade or transport or, or whatever. Whether we should now be moving more to building our services around uh, groups of people you might end up with a very large database which encompassed a huge amount of information about members of the public and with spurs off those, that database to deal with particular groups, the elderly or unemployed or children. We had a department of children in, under the Brown government. Uh, and similarly, uh, once you think in those terms, you then find yourself thinking about the power of the government uh, to have access about, to information about individuals and the need to protect the rights of individuals against abuse of that information in ways which are completely unforeseen. And, and you talked about, I won't keep you much longer, but you, talk, right. you talked about young people and, and how you know, they think it's their right to have control o over their lives yes. and, and sort of um, about data being the, the property of, of people, not public service. That is a big tension. I think there is a big tension, and I think there's a generation of young people, uh, and indeed not just young people, who see the information which the state possesses about them as being data which they should own rather than the state. There are issues about whether people should actually be in a position of owning their own data and giving permission to the public servant to have access to it rather than the government owning the data and, and using it as it sees fit. Uh, I think there are so many profound issues for the way we do government. 
government, not only in the way uh, that, uh, that I've described, but also in the access which individuals have to their representatives in Parliament, their access to government, their ability to hold people to account. Uh, and, of course, there's the whole question of how we do business between nations. Uh, when I was a young civil servant, all sort of communications with other countries went through the Foreign Office through our diplomatic service. And now I think the scope for people working in government departments in one country to communicate with people in other countries raises issues about the internationalisation of government business, which were never possible before. So can we move in, into an open society, an open e-society? Or, or, or do, do you think that perhaps there will be inertia, that at some level the progress will be halted or thwarted by individuals themselves? Fundamentally, that is one possibility, and I think the other issue is, the, is the, actually the exercise of power, because people don't let go of power easily, and quite a lot of what we're talking about is loss of control by politicians, which they don't necessarily want to have happen. So I think that these, we're talking about potential and opportunity but also the, the, the risks for individuals of losing control over their own data or indeed of governments using information against them, as we've seen in Iran, as one speaker demonstrated. Not only did Mariette Sharker, MEP for the Dutch Liberal Party, use new media and digital media to get her networks to help elect her, but once elected, she set about setting up a horizontal health network in Europe. New technologies allow for insight into others who share the same concerns and to engage bottom-up, she says. Well, I thought there was a clear gap between uh, the vertical structures, as you mentioned. Uh, most of the policy-making and the thinking is done in the committees, which are clearly uh, set by boundaries. For example, the Environment Committee or the um, Research and Technology Committee. But new media, more than anything, are horizontal matter which touch upon a number of issues in a yeah in an interactive way so sometimes a change um, in um, let's say uh, electronic health uh, dossiers on patients can lead to a number of different decisions when it comes to um, internal domestic affairs so you have to connect the dots really and this is what I thought should happen and I also believe that in political institution, democratic institution such as the European Parliament is often too closed off from civil society, from the business community and this intergroup is a nice way to uh, connect people. And, and you talked about empowering citizens, empowering people or the electorate if you like but, but you believe it is changing democracy and democracies and freedoms, how? Well there's more than ever there's an opportunity for citizens to speak up uh, to make their voice be heard, but also to connect with other people behind a cause. And whether these other people are in China or in uh, uh, the block uh, down the road, uh, these new technologies allow for insight into others who share the same concerns and to uh, build uh, vocal, vocal groups and to share best practices and to really uh, yeah, engage bottom-up. And I think this has been the empowering impact that new media have had. And, and you don't think in a way that, that, in fact, there's too much new media. It sort of overpowers us as well as being empowering, that, that, that in fact, we, we drown in, in information. You talked about, uh, you know, a, a Turkish airline tragedy. People via Twitter sent their, their photographs. But isn't there an issue of authenticity of information too? Well, this turned out to be... Um 
hot news, the fact that this airplane had crashed. But um, I think that there are a number of issues that are not really reported by the traditional media, which people are interested in. After all, it is a marketplace of ideas. So if somebody puts out a podcast or a message on Twitter that nobody cares about, then there won't be an audience for it. But if the person still wants to continue to do it, I mean, that's fine. Uh, but you also see the reverse where... Uh, a young woman from the Netherlands who has a winery in a remote area in the Netherlands has become one of the most popular people on Twitter because her observations are so sharp and so clever. And uh, without Twitter, she could have never gotten that audience and she almost became a celebrity and it's really changed her life I think but also her view is a very new view I mean who knows how a small entrepreneur from that area of the country thinks about things if it was not for these new media communication platforms. Human rights, says Shaka, are in danger, but other groups, such as women, will learn about their rights for the first time. We see that the struggle for human rights is moving online. And if the EU wants to be a credible global player, and if we actually say that we're a community of values, it means that we have to consider these new media, the digital impact on fundamental freedoms and human rights, not only look at the risks, which are real, censorship, Uh, surveillance technologies that are used to track down people, to arrest them, to limit their freedoms and their freedom of expression, but also to use the new opportunities to spread information to women on issues that might be taboo in a country. So, for example, sexual reproductive health rights or um, other information that can be crucial for uh, changing societies and empowering women to learn about their own rights, which perhaps their governments don't want to share with them, but which should be accessible to them because these are their rights. Free newspapers, more blogging, millions of text messages. But is the information less trustworthy? Professor Natalie Fenton of Goldsmiths London says democracy can't be measured by the quantity of news and that more information could be impoverishing us. Accuracy is a factor simply because of the speed that journalists have to work at. So uh, accuracy will always be a casualty when you're having to turn around 17 stories in a day or deliver you know, a story in 10 minutes flat. Uh, but it's more than accuracy. It's actually about the extent and range of news that we are receiving, uh, you would expect that because you've got a hugely expanded space, you would get more uh, variety of news. Actually, what you get is more homogeneity because people are just cutting and pasting from other news sites in order to fill the space that they've got. And, and there's also the other trend, isn't there, about entertainment, news being entertainment, and then for the Rethian values of inform, educate and entertain are being lost. Well, news has to sell for the most part in commercial practice. And so, yes, in order to sell more papers, it's followed even more uh, of an entertainment-led way of, of providing news material and 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 that will continue because that sells papers but wouldn't people say we're going through this amazing technological transformation people can talk to one another we can read china online people can read our newspapers here you know everybody can blog we've got citizen journalism how can it be impoverished surely everybody's feeding into journalism now and, and people have more choice well and partly that's true there is a hugely expanded 
information archive online. But how do you know where to get it? Where do you go for that information? Well, actually, most people still go back to the mainstream news sites. Those sort of alternative news uh, agendas and news sites, which are wonderful in all the things that they do, are very rarely found by the majority of people. So the standard mainstream news industry still dominates that public sphere. And that mainstream news industry is still following those news formats, which are increasingly entertainment-led and are increasingly the same across the board. The free market is making a profit, but says Fenton, the democratic values of the news are being diminished by the drive towards entertainment and communities are not getting the news they would want. What is interesting is if you look at the ways in which profit has gone down, it is still an incredibly healthy profit margin that is being made in most of these news organisations. But it's not the enormous 30% profits that they've been used to. So what they're doing is they're, they're, they're taking heed of the profit margins for the shareholders, but not taking heed of the democratic value of the news. And so actually the priorities are completely reversed and they will suffer as a consequence of that because people will still simply, in the end, go somewhere else for that entertainment-led material because that's much easier to get online. Now, before you go back into the conference, one final question. You actually say that when you do your research that communities aren't getting the news that they say that they want. Their local newspapers have closed down. A lot of local newspapers closed last year. But, But people actually want journalism that investigates what's important in their local communities. There was a huge desire amongst the people we were speaking to about local news for a type of watchdog journalism that walked the streets, that they could identify as the journalist, who they could then approach, who would then report on issues that were of concern to them, whereas what's actually happening is mergers and consolidations of local newspapers, taking newspapers out of the local communities, putting them, you know, sort of 20, 30, 40 miles away. They completely lose connection with the communities they're supposed to be serving, and as a consequence, nobody buys them anymore. John Witherow, editor of Sunday Times, says paid-for content is the future for the newspaper industry, but that paper newspapers will eventually become digital. He says quality isn't suffering from the online digital revolution. And he's over the moon at the 200,000 subscribers to the Times and Sunday Times online. I think we're really at a cusp. Um, In many ways, what's happening with the digital revolution, on the face of it, appears to be good. It's the flow of information becoming far more accessible right across the world. Far more information, good quality information, the sort of information you you wouldn't have got before, uh, before this digital revolution happened, or if you... It was very hard to acquire. Now it's relatively easy to acquire if you're online. But tied up with that is we don't know where all this is going. Uh, we, we have to wonder, there's the debate about information, people putting up so much data about themselves online, which is there forever. And Facebook uh, is, is obviously one of the sites where this is happening. And ultimately, when all this information is up there, you've got to wonder, and as, as technology improves, what's going to happen to that information? You assume it's going to be used benignly, Uh, But you can't be sure of that. 
And I think we've all got to be quite concerned that there's some, there's some sort of system in place that prevents this information being, being misused. Uh, and, and we have to be conscious of that because we've all read 1984. We know what can happen when information, there's too much information is in the hands of the wrong people. And we, I think we have to be concerned. But overall, at the moment, things just look great. Well, you are the man of the moment in terms of the, the pay model. You know, people talk about the naivety of newspapers going online, not charging, and thinking it would all work out for the good. Um, and uh, we have indeed heard James Murdoch talk about actually, you know, going out front, setting the, the trend and deciding it's time for people to pay. And, and um, are you pleased with the figures? Yeah, we put out figures today saying uh, that more than 100,000 people have paid to use the Times and the Sunday Times. And when you add in people on with newspaper subscription, uh, it goes up to 200,000. Now, after only a few months and with very little marketing of this uh, in the traditional sense, uh, we're, we're very pleased. Um, frankly, if you'd said to me at the launch that, that by uh, the beginning of November we'd have that many, I'd, I'd have been delighted. But, you know, it's growing every day and we anticipate it'll grow more and it has to grow more. I mean, it's very early days. And ultimately, when we look at this in a year or two's time, uh, those figures, I hope, will be considerably higher. And you've got to remember, we're doing this in, in a marketplace where almost all our newspaper rivals put it out for free. Uh, and that makes our job that much harder. Now, if others were to follow by charging a modest sum uh, for access to their content, I think it would help us. And, and I hope in due course others will, because I think it is the right model, financial model, for the survival of newspapers and for a diversity of comment that we've, we've experienced in this country for many years. I think it's a, it's a good system. It's a very competitive newspaper market, and there's a whole variety of views out there. We'd like that to continue. If we don't get this financial model right, the chances of that continuing into the indefinite future are getting increasingly remote. Apps and online are the future, says Witherow, as we enter a golden age of journalism. But he does think the BBC represents unfair competition to its competitors. When you get the paper online or you get an app, you're going to get an enhanced newspaper more than you get in print. So and it, the, the, the joy of it, it's cheaper and it's more. Uh, so for consumers, it's still a great deal. And I can hear the excitement in your voice because it's not necessarily a bad thing that we're not just at a crossroads, we're at a watershed now. But because actually, in, in terms of the tablet newspaper, in terms of the app newspaper, and, and your, your audience can be global, they can be huge. It's a great moment in some respects. I think so. I, I, I tell our journalists, this is, this is the golden age of journalism. Don't get depressed, of course revolution creates turmoil and uncertainty and insecurity but, uh, but the potential here is massive uh, and, and all we need to do is get the financial model right then we can invest in journalism which is ultimately what we want we want to reveal stories we want to show people what's going on we want to describe the world the contemporary the world in as, in a, in as most authoritative and reliable way as we possibly can and that requires investment so we have to get it right and does that require a diverse sector too there was a lot of debate about the BBC uh, and, and you know we heard the same problems in Germany too that in, in terms of you, you have a public sector you have trust and, and then you have a, a, a commercial media too it, it, it does need that balance but it needs to get that balance Right. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm a great admirer of the BBC, but my argument is that they were set up as a broadcaster, uh, which they've done a terrific job uh, for, for many years of doing. 
they've now moved into becoming a publisher, uh, putting an awful lot of words online and essentially publishing a newspaper. Now, I regard that as anti-competitive because I think newspapers have to struggle to survive in this market. The BBC has a sustained flow, a high flow of income from the licence fee. And, I, and I'm quite happy for them to carry on being a broadcaster online. I just don't think they should be in the written word on such a large scale. Freedom and the necessity to ensure that press freedoms are maintained is essential as we move into this digital age of journalism, says Professor Mattis Doffner of Axel Springer AG. First of all, I appreciate very much here in Cambridge the very lively and open-minded debate. It is stunning to me to which degree people are really actively participating with great questions. And uh, the, the, at the same time, I have the feeling that this freedom trap that I've just described in my lectures, that if you are too self-confident uh, and if you are too, in a way... Um, assured that freedom is something that you can count on, uh, then you're already in a trap because you're not going to defend it with the necessary energy. Uh, that this uh, danger of a freedom trap, in a way, has been confirmed. Uh, to me, it was uh, amazing how um, um, widespread... Uh, certain ideas about control, also control of the freedom of expression and freedom of press would be. And uh, I found that at the same time uh, inspiring and a bit uh, uh, frightening. So it's really worth making the case for freedom and particularly freedom of the press. The newspaper industry is now moving in the right direction to charge for online content, says Professor Doffner. And he thinks journalism has a great future, so long as quality is maintained. The pessimists are wrong. Absolutely. I'm, I think that this uh, depression that is widely spread uh, within the media industry is totally false. Uh, we have new distribution channels, uh, internet, uh, mobile devices, which will be, I mean, the tablets and the smartphones will be the newspapers and the magazines of the future. So I think we should be optimistic. We should use these new distribution channels. We should take advantage uh, of that. We should embrace progress uh, instead of trying to block progress. Uh, so I really think that journalism has a great future in the digital space. Did we make a mistake by putting content free online? We've just had the, the Times figures today for its, its paywall. I know you like to quote those. Yes, we the publishers made a mistake by offering content for free for more than 15 years and now it will be very difficult to correct that. I think what we really should do, we should count very much on the mobile devices because on the mobile devices people have the habit to pay what they do. Uh, they pay for a phone call, they pay for an SMS, for an MMS, they pay for an app. Why shouldn't they pay for great content? And, and what's the biggest challenge that we face in, in the future? Is it going to be, you know, taking that plurality, the diversity of views, all those voices that, that Murdoch talked about, and, and actually getting good quality content, and, and not, not just nonsense? The biggest challenge is that we, the publishers, are providing great content, quality content. If we are cutting costs uh, because we fear that the end of the newspaper is near, uh, then we are reducing the quality of our content and then we are entering uh, a vicious circle. So we really have uh, to uh, count on the attractiveness of independent investigative uh, reporting. We have to count on the 
power and seductiveness of uh, wonderful language and uh, of great and clear outspoken thoughts, uh, clear opinions. I think that is something that uh, readers, users will be interested in on paper and even more so in the digital space. So quality matters. But it's not just the media that is adjusting to the new digital revolution. Sir Martin Rees, president, the Royal Society, says the World Wide Web started with collaboration amongst academics and since then academics have been pioneers of new technology, which is allowing wider participation in science and higher education, for instance. Well, of course, academia led the revolution, of course, uh, uh, the early development of the web, etc. But uh, the point I was trying to make is that the uh, new technologies allow tremendously wider participation in science and in higher education. And it's been a, a wonderful leveller of the playing field in those respects. Well, l tell us a little bit about how academia led the digital revolution because you had uh, archived content, didn't you? You had free content and, and you have a mixed model. Well, I think um, the World Wide Web started, as you know, with uh, CERN particle physics sharing large amounts of data and collaborating in big projects and that was the, uh, the start of the concept which led to the World Wide Web and academics have, I think, been pioneers of many of the new technologies because it's especially important for them. In China, the internet is a contested space, but it's giving the Chinese population a chance to participate in politics as never before, despite clampdowns and protests. Kang Zhou of China Digital Times. Well, I'm, I'm painting a picture, a picture of how the Chinese work on netizens or citizens that using internet as a public space to express their voices and pushing the public agenda and largely increasing the awareness of human rights and freedom and democracy, those values in society. It's actually happening in a, a grand scale. The Chinese state, of course, put all the resources and control on the internet and still that is a sort of dominant factor of the, the internet contents. However, the, the, the presentation I'm giving is to say this space is so contested that the internet giving the opportunity of Chinese population a op uh, opportunity to participate in the politics in an unprecedented way and this is transforming the Chinese politics. Indeed your presentation was called River Crabs, Grass Mud Horses and the Grand Firewall Contested Space on the Chinese Internet. Just tell us that lovely River Crab story. Uh, the river crab is simply, uh, uh, in the Chinese language, uh, uh, it sounds the same pronunciation as harmony, which is a Chinese government slogan of building harmonious society. But uh, in the reality, the Chinese repression also being justified by building harmonious society, therefore being ridiculous, uh, ridiculed by the Chinese medicine called the river crab or river crab society. So river crab really is a critique to the government slogan, and it became a symbol of the online censorship, same as Grassmatter Horse that came from the same pronunciation of a one vicious Chinese slang, but a curse, but it being used now is a sort of rebellious symbol uh, that against the government censorship, and both are popular symbols online. And yet you have two extremely popular bloggers, don't you? The, the blogosphere would seem democratic. 
Well, it's it's more than two. Of course, there's uh, thousands of those voices. I I, I told uh, a couple of stories, but the blogosphere by large are far more liberal and uh, and and and. Uh, Mounted a powerful critique to the regime than any official media. So that's the given the Chinese blogosphere is alternative to public space in China. The world's poor too are now getting access to services through the mobile platform, and it opens up markets to the four billion people who currently aren't connected. Shadeep Prabhu, professor of Indian business and enterprise. At Cambridge Judge Business School. Yeah, so about four billion、uh, of the world's population, more than half the world's population, are left out of a lot of formal、uh, services and products that we take for for granted, whether they are in education, healthcare, financial services, or energy. And digital technologies offer the opportunity, or the possibility, for companies to serve these markets in an affordable、uh, and accessible way. And in, in terms of the mobile technology, that's going to be the big change factor, the big liberator, isn't it? You talked about Nokia and what they've been doing in the markets. Yeah, potentially the simple device of a mobile phone, which has now become quite radically affordable, to the point where large numbers of people in、uh, China and, and India and Latin America and Africa now have mobile phones, enables them not only to be able to communicate with others instantaneously and very cheaply, but also to get access to service. That can be delivered on that platform, whether they are information to farmers on the price of crops in neighboring markets, or、uh, simple lessons in English or in arithmetic to their children, or indeed、um, uh, financial services like mobile money to people who are unbanked. Sir Martin Chongzhou and Professor Prabhu agree that in the new digital age, our futures are more optimistic than some would have us believe. Despite the unpredictability of what direction societies will go in, just finally one short comment from you all, gentlemen, on, on just the power of the internet to change our lives and digital democracy. Is it a force for good? I believe it is because it、uh, empowers people, gives them access to more information, and it's especially important for those who are otherwise deprived. If you just think of the contrast between、uh, someone living in a traditional village, no access to books or information, and someone in India today with a mobile phone, the access to the internet—it's an amazing contrast. To think this has all happened in 20 years is amazing, and it makes one wonder what we can look forward to in the next 20 years. And, and your revolution is a 20-year one too. Well, I think China is also going、uh, towards a more open, transparent, and 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 more and more a, a, a accountable uh, society. Uh, regardless, the traditional mode of authoritarian regime、uh, continues, but in Chinese society, the growing awareness of、uh, their own rights and gaining sense of dignity and freedom, and empowered by technology,、uh, this trend will continue. So fundamentally, I have a belief to,、uh, I have a faith in the Chinese people themselves, just like people anywhere else, that uh, uh, with the time that will build the society, which will guarantee the Chinese people the freedom and dignity, and internet is one tool of it. Judith, do you agree about the lessons for India? Yeah, I think in the next. 
20 years, we're going to see a revolution led by digital technologies that will help bring on board the 4 billion people who are currently left out of formal exchanges and formal solutions for the problems and the needs they have in, in the fields of energy, education, healthcare and financial services. The vision spelt out collectively at the CRASH, Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities in Cambridge Symposium. Freedom and the digital revolution was without doubt an optimistic one. There were no calls for the burning of the printing presses as happened in the Gutenberg age. Here at Cambridge Judge Business School, the optimists won hands down. (music) 